my dog's butt is nasty. <laughs> Because <laughs> you know, she's so furry and hairy, oh, like yeah. who gets trapped down there, and I'm, yeah. and then she'll sit right on you, yeah. and like oh, get your no. poopy butt off me, please. <laughs> I feel like that's where the word dingleberry probably came from. <laughs> everybody and welcome to the bull and the badger this is the podcast that intersects asian american (laughs) culture and mental health yeah that's close enough it's a game show now (laughs) come along we're gonna win some prizes where the prize is discovering your own feelings and then maybe feeling bad about it later (laughs) sometimes like sometimes you forget the feeling where like like after the podcast, you feel like maybe worse than you started it because yeah, you're like thoughtful about it. Definitely. Something. I don't think that I feel worse sometimes. Oh, I don't want to talk about this. We don't need to talk about the podcast on the podcast. But I it's meta. Sometimes Everybody's we're a little it. too <laughs> navel gazy, I think. But anyway. <laughs> that's, that's all I know how to do. <laughs> I just like, wait, check in. How am I feeling? Good. <laughs> Angsty, perfect. <laughs> Status normal. Did you know that this is a little plug for OC Weekly? They have a little section called navel gazing. Oh. Because of Orange County navel oranges. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> and awful at the same time because I hate puns. But what, what's it about? Whatever. <laughs> I hate them. Sure. Sure you do. Unless they're, you know, for me. Anyways, go on. <laughs> No, that's it. That's all the information oh. I had to give you. Oh, I just wanted to know, wait, what do people write, though? For navel gazing? I think it's just news about Orange County. I don't know. I can't remember. I don't read the Orange County Weekly that much. Way to plug them, question mark? <laughs> Sorry. I wasn't re- prepared to be interrogated by you about it. <laughs> we, we only read Edwin's column. Let's just say that. Yes, true. It's true. I only read mostly Edwin's column. Well, when I read the LA Weekly, I definitely only go straight to, like, the the food things mm-hmm. like oh what are they saying about food in Culver City and then I'm like oh that place is awful or like oh I haven't tried that one okay. well speaking of food you had a burrito <laughs> <laughs> great segue, great segue. <laughs> yeah let's just pause on that one just like look at the mechanics of that I didn't even see that coming <laughs> just the way you just swung toward that topic full force what kind of a burrito was it it was delicious. It was a bean and cheese. I've been on this bean and cheese like burrito kick, which I think I don't know. Maybe people don't want to be around me right now, like because of that. But um, <clears throat> the reason why April is talking about the burrito <laughs> that I ate last night is because uh, she and I every now and then go on a fast food fast, and I think we've mentioned it before on the podcast. Um, because every time like we decide to do it, like I get really good at it. I like I just like am determined. I'm like no. We're fasting this now. And like, I'll drive right by. How much of it, like, what goes through your mind? Is it like, we're doing this together and I'm not going to let April down? Is that kind of like... Yeah, it's like a let, not let April down. But I also like, I think I'm able to go like, can't let yourself down. Well, that's good. Don't let me down. I have to be honest, though. Like, when we do those things, I immediately fail and I just don't tell you. (laughs) 
<laughs> and then you'll be you'll check in with me like a week later and you're like so how's it going and i'm like great <laughs> i like the lies you, you tell me and it, it helps fuel me and then and then i think you were trying to do a fast where you didn't drink as much coke at work or something something like that just less sugar intake in general yeah that's hard that's hard i mean like i yeah i think not that we need to go on another one but i feel like it's like helpful every now and then to kind of just return to those things to kind of like like my roommates right now are juicing you know because they feel like they're eating poorly but you know like to reset so when people juice does that mean that they just drink juices mm. all day long and no no like solid foods that's what they're supposed to do that's like true juicing <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, that's the, the voice of wikipedia you know? <laughs> true juicing is about um you know is about uh, having juice all through the day, and and sometimes like like really extreme cleanses is just like lemon water and like cayenne pepper. Ca- and yeah, and that's well, stuff. that's I, not like a real diet. That's I feel a like bad diet. It's it's super bad for you actually, but like the juicing I that have done been that doing, before. <gasps> did you survive? My well, friend like, like threw up that long. the first day. Oh really? Yeah, she threw up. I was like, oh maybe you should stop. Maybe she got <laughs> the formula wrong. Uh, it might be that, but I think she just she's probably one of those like just skinnier people who like has to operate on more calories anyway, and she doesn't eat unhealthfully. Like mm-hmm. she's not terrible, but I don't know. I think she's just one of those people who picks things up too. I'm not gonna say her name, but she knows <laughs> who she is. <laughs> Um, well, anyway, the point of us bringing that up is that, like, clearly, I mean, like, when it comes to eating healthy, like, I'm really horrible about it. And it definitely is not just, like, a, I just don't eat healthy, but it, it has, like, another aspect to it. The emotional which is like, aspect. Yeah, yeah, which is, like, stress or sadness or whatever. And what's the first thing I go to? Something tasty that will make me happy, you know? So... <sighs> I, I, I give it to myself as a reward for doing something. And it's like, change the reward, Vanessa. <laughs> like, what would you change your reward to? I don't know. That's what I, that's why it's like not so great. Cause it's like, it has to be like, sometimes I'm like, I'm going to exercise today. And for a reward, I'm going to eat a burger. Like, it's like, <laughs> well, that's not going to work. You uh, have to answer this question and, and we can cut this out if you want to, but I'm curious, like, do you talk to, does your therapist ever have like suggestions? You know what? I haven't, directly talk to her about that okay yeah i probably should i mean like right now i think what i'm doing is called process oriented therapy Mm -hmm. where it's less um cognitive behavioral stuff so Mm -hmm. she doesn't really give me direct advice like sometimes i'm like what am i supposed to do and then she's like well what do you think you did i'm like no (laughs) why do i pay you for you know like but like but that's the point is like i actually pay her not to think for me a person-centered Client yeah, something. client-led, whatever. Yeah. It's like all this like talky, talk, 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 mm-hmm. talk stuff. And actually, um, all my friends, I was just telling someone, like all my friends who started out doing more, you know, talk, process-oriented, client-led stuff, like they eventually kind of switched over to CBT. Mm-hmm. And I think both were useful. I feel yeah. like both have their I think place. depending on who you are and, and the way that you operate, you know, a lot of times I think because client-centered is so positive and so mm. not like putting your ideas on, on the client, you know, like that mm. they feel more able to be open and talk about stuff, mm. at least according to things that I've read. Interesting. Um, 
Whereas if you're a more intellectual person, then you yeah. don't really care that much about talking about your feelings and you want to do more like, you know, thinking and like productive behavior. Yeah. Like pattern change <clears throat> with behavioral, <throat> like it's like the outside in type right. of thinking. Mm-hmm. All good for all different people. But like, this is a perfect point point to uh, bring in our guest. Our guest today is Paul Matsushima, who is the sibling of Anne Matsushima. And um, who is <laughs> just on... you didn't catch that, that was sibling. <laughs> oh, right. I feel like... I, today I tried to say forgiveness. I said for forgiveness. <laughs> um But yeah, he's... Uh, I met him through the dock, and like, it was awesome because... The first time we met, we just... What did we eat? We ate something that you recommended. <laughs> Probably, like, Hawaiian plate lunch. Because yeah, that's all they yeah. have in Gardena. But uh, other than that, um, you know, uh, that was one of the coolest, best experiences, I think. Um, the Hawaiian food? Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> Paul being part of the dock. Oh, yeah. And, like... How uh, did you set that up? How did that all come together? Well, I was going and talking to, um, like all the family members for like the the main characters so like i have all these interviews with all of chris's family which like the only one that really made it into the doc was him and his dad you know but um you know i got to have a conversation with paul and Anne together especially after Anne talked with um their father mm-hmm. you know just about the experience and stuff like that and i don't know i think all the interviews with all the relatives were really really good but Paul's made it in. Paul well, made so, the cut. so let's let's make that connection. Um, we're t- we were talking about burritos. I got lost again. Oh well, <laughs> well there was a discussion about kind of like doing fast food recovery because maybe we're a little addicted to fast food because there's some emotional gratification when we get those things. And I think um, I don't know. Uh, in terms of bringing in Paul, first let's maybe talk about who you are, what you're doing right now, and kind of like what your experiences with recovery are. Sure. Um, so like you said, I'm Anne's brother, <laughs> little brother. Um, <laughs> it's just interesting because Anne and I, like, we're so different, and yet mm-hmm. sort of our life journeys have always gone in similar directions. Like in college, like at almost the exact same time we both got into the black power movement. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah. It's just interesting. I don't know. Yeah. But, but anyways, um, so I currently, um, I work in the little Tokyo area for a nonprofit organization. We do like leadership and youth development work. Is it with, um, little, the LTSC, like little Tokyo service center? It's not, they're like one of our closely affiliated organizations, but, um, the organization I work for is called Kizuna in Japanese. It means like the ties that bind or like a bond or connection. Um, but we, our, our main sort of organizational goal is to, um, sort of develop the future leaders of the Japanese American community. So we work specifically with JA youth and cause, um, one of the reasons is if you go to a lot of like. Japanese American community organizations, like whether it's a church or a temp- Buddhist temple, like a Christian church or like a community center, basketball uh, leagues, basketball leagues. So exactly. That's, like, uh, that's all I can think about is Gardena <laughs> yeah. four, yeah, F O R or yeah, GEO yeah, yeah. or what yeah, have yeah, yeah. you. Um, but a, a lot of their leadership, they're like, 
uh, you know, in their 40s, 50s, 60s, and, and none of the youth are stepping up, right? So it's sort of this endemic problem in, in our community where, there's like... There's a, a generation gap. Yeah, there's a generation gap. And, and youth, like, they grow up in the leagues, they grow up in these centers, but, they you know, they go off to college and then they move away, or they even move back to their hometown and, like, they don't get involved, right? So they sort of take for granted what they've been given throughout their lives. Like, mm. they've played JA basketball all their lives, but they just do it because they want to like outcompete their friends, you know, or be the best baller and think they're going to be the future Jeremy Lin, but that's <laughs> never going to happen. It's so interesting. Like the kids we work with, one time we asked them like, so what do you want to be when you grow up? And like nine out of 10 of the boys were all like, I want to be a professional basketball player. Oh, that's and like, so different. Yeah. It's so weird. I'm different like, from our generation, at least. I mean, I feel like everybody's like, Dr. Engineer Lawyer. Right. <laughs> yes. No. Well, I, okay. Anyway. <laughs> oh, quick, quick, uh, quick aside about all this because now I'm like interested. I'm like culture. Um, but is it like a Yonsei kind of Gosei kind of? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. So the majority of the staff and our volunteers are all like within their twenties, thirties, and probably oldest are like mid thirty, like Yonsei oh. or Gosei people. What's Yonsei? Um, and Gosei? Yonsei is fourth generation. Gosei is fifth generation. Oh, okay. So they're like they're great, great grandparents. I guess were the ones who immigrated to the U.S. from Japan. Um, so we, you know, the Japanese American community, it it does have both like those folks who were in America since like the early 1900s, you know, like California gold rush, or I guess late 1800s. Sorry, not California girls. That's Chinese, but like more immigration to <laughs> Hawaii. And yeah, stuff. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so there's like that side of the community, but there's also like the more recent Japanese immigrants who are like post-war. We call them Shin Issei, Shin Nisei, which mm. are like um, the post-war first generation, post-war second generation. Uh-huh. So they have more ties to Japan. Uh-huh. Um, so there's sort of like this split in the community where like one side's way more Americanized, one side's way more like not loyal, but like closer ties with Japan. And, you know, like most of the old says, go says, we don't speak Japanese. We don't, you know, the only, the only connection we have is like through these basketball leagues or like mm-hmm. our churches. Right. Well, it's a, um, it, it created a, a whole new culture pretty much. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's like a, just, it's so unique from like even more unique than I would say. I mean, like there's a lot of things about Chinese American culture. That's very like, Oh, that's very Chinese American, but not in the way that, the Japanese, you know, especially after the war, had to reclaim something mm-hmm. for themselves. So I always find that really fascinating. The yeah. the Japanese basketball leagues, <laughs> baseball leagues and soccer leagues. And you you couldn't join them unless you were like a little bit Japanese. Yeah, there's like blood quotas, like yeah. literally. And then certain teams, they allow one non either Japanese or not Asian on the team and so they would always recruit like the six foot ten yeah. like black kid or the you ringer. Know, yeah yeah the ringer. It's like how are you supposed to compete with this dude? Why is it just why is it one? Like I, I think was a they quota. were trying to Yeah, there's a quota and they're trying to make it a little bit more inclusive. But then, I mean, it's it's interesting because the whole history of, like, these basketball leagues is because of racism, right? Because, yeah. like, they weren't allowed to, like, J.A.s weren't allowed to play in white leagues, you know? So they yeah. created their own, so sort of their space. And now it's become, like, this new thing of competitiveness. And Ayo, people yeah. don't, don't, like, always 
remember the history and that's kind of what our organization is all about like we're trying to reclaim that history and sort of tell the kids like this is why these a lot of these things started and you know you can't just take it for granted and think like oh it's just about my own benefit right Mm -hmm. it's it's sort of for the community's benefit it's for them to remember where they came from and Mm -hmm. you know remember where they're going and you know we're not like americanized whitewashed japanese kids like we're Japanese Americans were always going to be seen as sort of foreigners until maybe 2050 when everybody's you know, something. Yeah, yeah, everything's something and mixed. A dash. <laughs> I never knew anything about these basketball leagues. I only know because my cousin's half Japanese and like, you know, it's like the chap. Like we, you know, like <laughs> you call uh, we call her chap, but like um, it's horrible. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's just like it's, like it's like it's basically another way of saying Hapa. It, it doesn't have the same like negative connotations. It just means you're Chinese and Japanese. And but like because her dad was Japanese, I feel like um, you know they followed that culture more strongly because there's just more moves towards that. Like none of us ever had to go to Chinese school. Like none of us ever had to do anything like like learn Chinese culture things. Like we just kind of had to soak it up as we were growing up or we had to actively seek it. But like they're like the Japanese American leagues are a way of connecting culture, but also like bringing community around like a specific sport or, you know, like the competitive nature Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. of something. And so like the Chinese just don't have any of that. Like it's, it's really like, I don't have access. I mean, probably because I'm third generation, but like I don't have access to like, a Chinese culture except through my church. Like, that's mm-hmm. literally it. And they don't teach Chinese culture. You're just supposed to, like, figure it out. Like, if you didn't get slapped that day, it's because you didn't do something wrong. <laughs> you know, like, like things like <laughs> Chinese dance. I know a lot of people did that growing up. They were, they probably had parents who were closer to, like, you remember how when, before you met my parents, you thought they were white because when you talked on the phone with them, maybe that wasn't you, but like people would used to think my parents were white. That doesn't sound familiar to me. <laughs> <laughs> I forget who it was. They were like, oh, your parents are white. I'm like, do I, what? <laughs> Not adopted. I've never talked talk about being adopted, but, um, And yeah. they see your mom and they're like, she's a very Americanized Latina. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, people see my mom, she's Latina. So it's like... Well, you must be then Filipino. I'm like, I don't know. Sure, why not? And adopted. But, um, you know, uh, I think, yeah, I just never had access to China. Like, I don't, like, recently somebody asked me, like, do you have any, like, Chinese cultural dance contacts? I'm like, well, looking at the wrong person. I know some people who did Chinese dance and they're they're the same generation as you are. Oh, see, their parents probably put them into Chinese school and didn't put them in a soccer camp you know yeah, like it was just yeah, like a yeah. conscious choice to like have them continually speaking chinese as well whereas i you know they like speak chinese i'm just trying chinese. to say that like you're like <laughs> you have an image of your mind and they're like no it was really like very much like you but they went did like some cultural things right right well I, I guess what i'm saying is maybe they're definitely had the very similar upbringing but their parents decided to connect them to their background a lot more through chinese cultural dance like that's a thing but it's not like a thing the way that japanese american basketball or chinese churches are a thing does that make sense like the community is 
stronger and has like deeper ties. Like when you look at the Amy Tan books, like a lot of those people, the first way that the immigrants find community is through a church. They may not have faith, but they know that there's other Chinese speaking people there yeah. and who have gone through the same thing. So then they go to those. Whereas Chinese cultural dance, I don't, I don't know. I think it might be one of those things where you have to like pay. So people with resources <laughs> can do those kinds of things. I mean, that's, that's, I'm just making conjectures, but, um, I guess in terms of, so Kizune. Kizuna. Kizuna. Yeah. So how did you, how did you get into that? Is it related to any of like your work in recovery or Uh, (laughs) see how I tried to swing that back to you, (laughs) but it wasn't as good as, so you had a burrito last night. (laughs) No, I mean, I I sort of just fell into it. Like I, I did Asian American studies in college. Um, so I guess it, you know, that background sort of trained me to like have this, this mentality of like always sort of being involved and giving back to your community, um, sort of, you know, that more progressive social justice bent. Um, so I, I, I sort of, and you know, knowing Anne, my sister, like our, our parents just weirdly raised us to (laughs) not be the typical, like, like Asian American family where, you know, like they didn't put a lot of expectations on us to be like doctors or lawyers or engineers, what have you. Mm -hmm. Um, so They were like, even though both of them are in the medical field, (laughs) but, um, I mean, you know, so we didn't feel those pressures to like, to, to, to do that. So, um, yeah, I mean, we just sort of found our way and, um, but yeah, I, I, I sort of just fell into this work. Um, I, I did this internship in little Tokyo a few years back. Um, that's sort of where I got connected with people. Um, yeah, but I mean, my work has nothing to do with recovery or, like mental health stuff. That's more of probably my work triggers my mental health, right? <laughs> um, and yeah, if my boss is listening, I'm, you know, he doesn't know any of this. So. <laughs> he's not allowed. But I mean, yeah, he's he, he's a great boss. Don't get me wrong. I'm not just saying that to suck up or anything. <laughs> <laughs> we got that out of the way. Yeah. No, no, no. I I agree. I I think. Um, I'll show up to therapy and then I'll start talking about work and then the whole discussion becomes about work and I'm like, oh, I can't believe I just talked about work. Like, work's so lame. It just feels like something that's so surface. Like, it's not who I am because I don't believe my work is who I am, right? And, but then it, but she's like, well, we're getting at different things. We're talking about, we're talking about anger management. We're talking about stress management. We're talking about, you know, like how you deal with authority, you know, like how you talk to other people and like all those other things that, Mm -hmm. you know, are related to kind of like a a bigger picture of who you are. So like, I think, yeah, work probably does trigger like mental (laughs) health things. I, and like we just had Jenny, well, we didn't just have her like last season we had Jenny Yang come on and she worked for a nonprofit and it drove her nuts. Mm -hmm. You know, she got super burnt out and now she's doing comedy, you know, like she does comedy and, but she's like, she's like one of the hardest working comedians I've ever seen. Like I'm, she's always on the move. Like she's always like, Oh, I'm in Chicago. Oh, she just she just came back from Taiwan, I think. Wow. She was like eating all this like really delicious food. I was like <sighs> Now I have to go eat some fast food <laughs> and not eat and not drink soy milk fresh from the bag. Well, I mean, in terms of nonprofits, I I do think there's like this misconception that they automatically burn you out because you're doing really hard work on the ground, like working with clients and stuff. And in a lot of places that is the case, but I don't think that's true everywhere. Mm. Right. It's, um, like my, my nonprofit I work at is relatively new. We were started in the past five years. Mm -hmm. Um, so 
it's sort of like created by young people for young people, but mm-hmm. um, like our staff, our board structure, you know, our organizational structure really focuses on not burning you out. That's really cool. So like, I mean, I have a really flexible schedule and because I just had a son like a year ago, my boss has been <sighs> really good about, old. yeah, he's 10 years or 10 months now. Oh, wow. Crazy. But um, yeah, my boss is really good about like, like having a flexible work schedule. Like I work remotely a lot. Um, Cause you're pretty far from Little Tokyo, yeah, right? Yeah, when you said that, I was like, Cardina. "Whoa, yeah. what kind of commute is that?" It's not that bad, like forty minutes each way. Oh, okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's just sort of an aside about nonprofit work. Um, like, like even though I say that my work triggers me, and um, I don't think that's true for everyone who works at my organization, or like even you know, like at Little Tokyo Service Center, they're fairly good about like you know maintaining their their workers health and you know mental health status and stuff but for me it's more of just i don't know it's like i've always um yeah like i I think my own personal issues sort of come into play and it affects how i my job right and so it that's it's so so i guess what i'm saying is more of a personal reason rather than like a systemic thing that causes mental health for everyone who works in nonprofit. everybody if you like what you've heard so far in this podcast check out episode 209 called holding space here's a quick sample one give people permission to trust their own intuition wisdom two give people only as much information as they can handle three don't take their power away Mm, that's important i know just let's just sit on that (laughs) okay i'm done So Vanessa and I kind of talked a little bit about our like, (laughs) it's so sad to just say it, but like our like food addiction to like, when we were like panicked emotional problems. That's a long way of saying that. But like, um, is there, is, did that like strike you in any way or anything like ring a bell with you about like recovery or at least trying to recover? Um, yeah, I mean, so I, I don't think I'm comfortable sharing my specific like addictions, right? Because I'm not at that place yet. Mm. Uh, maybe one day. Um, but I, I think the sort of the underlying thing that causes me to have these unmanageable sort of habits um, is like I struggle with anxiety and it, I guess specifically social anxiety. So um, I think there's a misconception about anxiety. Like there's all these articles on Buzzfeed and different popular places where it's like anxiety is being fearful or it's being worried, you know? And I think those are aspects of anxiety, but it doesn't encapsulate like the true thing that people who are diagnosed with anxiety disorders go through. Right. So, Mm -hmm. um, like when I say anxiety, it's more of like, uh, there's a sense of powerlessness and like your, moods or, or your whatever sort of interferes with your daily life, right? Mm-hmm. And it causes you to not be able to function properly. So when I say that I have social anxiety, it's sort of this fear of being embarrassed or humiliated when people are like by the scrutiny or judgment of others, right? So for instance, why I think a lot of people have fears of public speaking is because like they'll get up there and they won't be able to perform, right? And then people will be like, oh, that person's an idiot or they can't speak Mm -hmm. clearly, right? Mm -hmm. So they're they're at the judgments of others, right? So it's sort of this performance um, 
you know, it's based on your performance, right? So for me, what, how it works out is I'm naturally an introverted person. Um, but you know, a lot of people sort of get introversion mixed up with like shyness or quietness and, Mm. you know, it is that right. Um, I think introverted people are naturally quieter, Mm -hmm. but for me, the way it works out is like, uh, when I'm in certain social settings, like my anxiety triggers so that it, it causes me to be more quiet than I would actually want to. Right. So internally I'm like, Oh, I want to talk. I want to relate. I want to like, you know, engage with people and get to know them. But the anxiety triggers me to sort of like get scared and it, 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 you know, my, my default is to sort of go in my shell and like not engage and just sort of check out mentally. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of the deeper underlying thing that causes a lot of my stressors and a lot of my addictive type qualities. Right. So, um, so that's why like, um, if I go to a party, like I'll drink way too much because it's sort of that liquid courage right, that right. causes me to break out of my shell yeah. or, you know, um, do you have any, like, cause I mean, I can totally, totally completely relate to you on this, but, and do you, do you, cause I kind of do this. Do you have like at your age, have you figured out like, um, I wish I could think of the word, um, equations, like, if X amount of people and they're like this and that, but if Y amount of people. And so in that situation, I can sense myself being more comfortable sure. than in this kind of situation. Uh, I, I think a lot of it does depend on the situation, but mm-hmm. so like, for instance, like when we were just hanging out right before this podcast, yeah, I just right? thought about that. I was like, <laughs> I did the wrong thing. Yeah. There's like a room full of strangers that I don't know. Um, that usually can trigger me, but be, because I've, you know, been going to therapy and different things for the past several years, like I'm stronger now, so it doesn't trigger me as much. Um, but it's usually like at work, if I have to go to a networking thing, you know, Um, where everyone's mingling and I don't really know a lot of people and like the expectation is to go out and meet people on a work context, you know, professional context where you're like, this is where I work for and mm -hmm. where do you work for and how can we work together? You know, like Mm -hmm. that, that's very stressful because, um, yeah, like, like that. And then uh, another thing that stress that triggers me is if they're like, it's weird how there's certain people who I feel sort of uncomfortable around, mm. um, that really triggers me. So like, especially my parents, um, because I think I, in- with my parents, I internalized like a, a childlike mentality where I'm still like 10 years old. Right. Mm. Yeah. The, the roles come back into yeah, play when you're yeah. with them. Sure. And so when I'm around them, it's like, I am not allowed to be myself. Right. So when I'm with them, I feel like they view me as not maybe they don't view me, but I just feel like I'm 10 years old. Right. Mm -hmm. And I'm like this little kid who is irresponsible and he's not mature and he's, you know, all those things that go along with being 10 years old. Mm -hmm. Um, And but in reality, like I'm a mature adult who has a kid and I'm married, (laughs) you know, and I have like longstanding career. And and, and so like I'm, I'm not this 10 year old year old boy I'm like this adult who's like has it together and is like can interact socially but when I'm with them it like all those feelings all those emotions all those memories come back right and so there are certain other people you know in addition to my parents that sort of trigger that Mm -hmm. and so when I'm around them socially like I'll tend to 
be a lot more withdrawn right and so whenever i'm around them like their perception of me is like oh paul's this really quiet guy Mm -hmm. but in reality like in other situations i feel a lot more comfortable so i'm more outgoing i'm more you know Mm -hmm. um so like those those other people who see me as more outgoing like that's their that's their perception of me Mm -hmm. um yeah do you think that or not do you think but like what are some things that like techniques or or just like like mental processes that that have helped you sort of deal with that in different situations yeah there's there's probably like the easiest one where if you're at a party or something just go to the bathroom you know like (laughs) excuse yourself (laughs) oh really you can just go pee and then everything's fixed no i mean it's it's sort of a you know you go isolate yourself for a second and then you sort of like mentally check in you're like okay i could do this like Hmm. you know is there like um, a coaching like an internal coaching that needs to happen or I guess a little bit. I mean, at least with me, and I think a lot of people who have social anxiety, there's a lot of internal dialogue that goes on. So when you're interacting with someone, it's not just like, oh, let me focus on the conversation that we're having, but it's also, there's a third, a second layer where it's like, let me focus on how this person is viewing me, right? And so it, it sort of clouds your mind and it takes up a lot of uh, mind space, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, but I mean, in terms of other ways to cope, uh, I think it's it's sort of the empathetic, like put yourself in the other person's shoes and think about how they're actually thinking of you. Because mm-hmm. in my mind, it's always like, oh, this person, like my default is, oh, this person is to thinking they're judging me or they're thinking mm-hmm. negative thoughts about me. But then if I were to put myself in like your shoes, mm-hmm. most likely you're just not thinking about that at all. You're thinking about like, oh, Burritos. crap. Yeah. Like, <laughs> what am I going to eat later? Or, oh, look at how cute that dog is. <laughs> you know, so you're not even thinking about it. So sort of when you put yourself in the other person's shoes, like it's helpful. Right? Mm. Yeah. I had to, I have to often like isolate myself for a little bit. Sometimes like we were having, I think it was my sister's baby shower oh, and then always... like her family or her uh, in-laws were there and then people started filtering in, you know? And so then the more people came, the more stressed out I got and they had to like fold my laundry for an hour. <laughs> <laughs> and I just went upstairs and folded laundry, like right when the party started and my sister came up and she was like, what are you doing? And I'm like, just finish my laundry. <laughs> but I had to like really like force myself to return, you know, that was hard. That was a hard one. Do you feel like that's something you want to like recover or work on? Or like, is that something like when people have social anxiety, is that, do you feel like you have to work on it because you're always forced into social situations? Or is it something that you feel like you'd rather not engage in? No, I mean, I, I definitely feel like I want to work on it, but I, at the same time, I think that what has been very helpful for me lately is just being like, you know, like just be, forgive yourself. Like you are who you are, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and you can't beat yourself up for not being someone who you aren't and being Mm -hmm. like completely socially capable in every single situation, you know, like, Hey, if I'm going to be quiet, then I'm just going to be quiet. And like the people okay with it then that's cool and if they're not then oh well you know like right right yeah yeah and um yeah like don't beat yourself up about it like sort of acknowledge that it's happening and just move on it's like I like thinking about sports uh, sports analogies. Like I'm I don't watch sports or anything, but <laughs> like but I you like, like the sports. analogies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So don't, don't assume like I'm the sports buff, right? I like um, war analogies, so it's cool. But like you know, like if if you're playing baseball and like 
you know, someone hits a ball to you and you're, you're supposed to catch it, but you drop it. Right. And the whole, whole crowd is like watching and it's like, Oh, that, that person effed up. Um, if you keep like dwelling on that mistake, it's going to increasingly affect your game to be worse and worse. Right. So sort of like acknowledge it happened. Yeah. Like I screwed up, but just, you know, for, like you said, forgive yourself, move on. Um, huh. yeah. And I think it back to your question about like, is this something you want to like address and grow from. Um, I, I think there are definitely times where I just want to disengage and sort of be my, by myself. And that's totally fine. Like, you know, you can be a hermit at times and like, that's fine. But other times, um, it, it is something that I definitely want to grow in and, and, and become stronger in because this thing, it holds me back a lot. Cause, um, in terms of like what I want to do in life, like, I feel like I'm I feel like I'm good at teaching, so I, I, I would like to teach in some, and I, I do currently at my job when we work with youth, I lead a lot, I facilitate a lot of the discussions and the workshops and stuff. Um, but if I was to go into a more formal teaching role, like that'd be cool. But the, the anxiety really holds me back because I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, how are my students going to view my, you know, like view my teaching abilities and view my, if I was ever to be a professor or something, like how would they view me as a professor, right? And so that really, those mental processes really come down and affect me where, you know, it makes me feel like I'm incapable. And so I sort of put that on the back burner and never even address it. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, so those are some of the ways that it affects my long-term thinking too. Uh, In all these things, I feel like we figure out coping mechanisms and ways of like dealing with certain things. Like even, okay, and this is, I I hate saying this to like, introverts but i do get a little bit maybe i'll i'll say i'm more shy than getting actual social anxiety where like i don't want to engage and like like i'll just choose not to go to events where like i won't know a lot of people i'm just like well i'm just gonna have to make an effort and i don't feel like making an effort today (laughs) so i'm not gonna show up you know (laughs) or just find a way to just yeah like like engage only with people that i know i'm gonna feel safe with and you know like and i i like, so I don't know how you guys do it. Cause honestly, I feel like it must be exponential, like compared to whatever I'm feeling. And, <laughs> and people consider me like a really extroverted person, but so like these coping mechanisms and like ways of dealing with it, like, I feel like it's hard because there's socially acceptable ways to do coping mechanisms. And there's un like, there's things that are like really frowned upon. Right. And I wonder if that's like, not the difference between like, Mm, I get, I don't know where I'm trying to go with this, but like, I feel like when we talk about recovery and figuring out like solutions, like a lot of like stuff that I used to do for like when I was feeling kind of depressed was just like, I would completely just shut down and just, I just go to sleep. Cause then, mm-hmm. then I can shut down the thoughts. But I feel like there's a certain point where like, it's not acceptable to be like, you know, like sleeping all the time or do you know what I'm saying? Or like, or like, that's not a way to deal with things. But like, yeah. you know, we talk about forgiving ourselves for certain things and we talk about, um, um, you know, like accepting certain things about ourselves. So I wonder where that line is, or if you guys have kind of started figuring out like, well, this is, and I don't even like to use this word that much. Cause like productivity in therapy, I feel like it's not necessary. It's like a, it's not a helpful word. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, cause I feel like when, like with everything, you know, moderation is important. And when something, when your coping mechanism begins to negatively affect your life and the 
possibly the lives of those around you, then that's when it's not great. Like, I mean, anything can be considered a coping mechanism. Exercise can be considered sure. a coping mechanism. Yeah. And it's socially acceptable yeah. too. Work can be considered a co- coping mechanism. Another socially acceptable you know? um, coping but mechanism. But when things start to, you know, negatively affect your life and maybe those around you, you know, that's a problem. And eating sucks because you have to eat to live. <laughs> yeah, you you gotta you gotta have burritos to live. I, it's just let's let's be real. And everyone celebrates, you know, and like it's just it it's it's hard to like keep it like. Yeah, I don't know. and I feel like with the the you know the balance that you're talking about, like where is that line mm-hmm. of like the good versus the bad or the acceptable versus the unacceptable. Um, I feel like, at least in terms of like the recovery process of people who actually have these issues that affect their daily lives and like get in the way of being a functioning member of society, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you can, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I think you, you sort of always have to be pro- proactive and I know that sounds sort of cliche, but um, cause you can very easily be like a functioning addict, right? Where like, oh, right, to, sure. to use an example, like you can drink alcohol every day and not get quote unquote drunk or right. like, you know, shit faced. Right. Uh, but you know, your you, child won't hear this. It's okay. <laughs> um, but you know, you like, you can have a beer or two every day. And, and so, um, so when I say being proactive, like, um, you know, I, I like, I like the example of like, if you had a physical illness, like if you had cancer or something, like you can know you have cancer and if you never do anything to address it, like it'll only get worse and worse and worse. Right. Mm -hmm. But if you're proactive with it and like you have your doctor's appointments and you get chemo and you know, whatever else you have to do to battle cancer, like Mm -hmm. that's when you get increasingly healthy. Um, and, and I like to look at it the same way if, if you're coping in negative ways, right. And you have these certain patterns, like if you're having drinks every day, um, that might be the equivalent of like having, um, dormant cancer. Mm. Right. But if you're like proactively addressing things, um, you know, then you'll get better and better. And then I, um, I'm also thinking about like to go back to the social anxiety thing. Um, one of my defaults is, uh, cause you don't always like interaction with people. One of the defaults, mm-hmm. at least for me, and I would assume for other people who have social anxiety is to escape mm-hmm. or to like check out. Right. Yeah. So the escapism is sort of where these, um, unhealthy coping mechanisms come in, whether it's, you know, drugs, alcohol, sex, whatever it could be. Um, that's when the coping, me- you know, the coping things really can snowball out of, uh, out of control. Um, is there yeah I'm curious too because you mentioned like the two beers a day and that's definitely not what I think of when I think of an alcoholic right I think of someone who's like non-functioning like they're on their way to liver cancer you know the the old adage about like um like what happens is like I think you have like a really red cheeks because like basically your the blood vessels like break and they'll you know like but I wonder if um the point of recovery from addiction is also to not have like crutches like that. Do you know what I'm saying? Cause I feel like two beers a day, like every day is more of a crutch mm-hmm. than like, you know, from, 
in terms of dealing with whether it's anxiety or stress or, you know, like, so there's something in your life you don't want to deal with, like they become crutches instead. Like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, is the goal in recovery to get off of crutches and just function in a way where you don't need them? Or is it something where you'll always be kind of like limping around or? Yeah. I think the ultimate goal is to be like completely cold Turkey clean of everything. Um, and, and, you know, the example of the two beers a day, that's probably not the best example. I just use it because it's on the top of my head sure, sure. sort of thing. But well, let's um, say five beers a day. Let's yeah, say five. Yeah. Okay. I mean, for me, like someone who has not the highest to- or not the, yeah, not the lowest, highest tolerance, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> we know what you're talking about. <laughs> five beers would be, you know, I'd be gone. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, definitely you don't want to have any crutches. I mean... Like if you were to go to an AA Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, you know, most people, when they introduce themselves, they're like, hi, I'm Paul. I'm a recovering alcoholic. The reason they say recovering is because they acknowledge that they will never be 100% clean. Mm. Right. And for the rest of their lives, um, as an addict, they will always be in recovery. Right. And so um, for them, it's sort of like I have to be 100% clean or I'm just going to slip up and spiral down out of control and my life's going to be over that sort of thing right so it's a real powerful like phrase even though it's like three words um to say that you're constantly in recovery and that's not for everyone i mean that's usually the people who admit that they have these you know crazy addictions that are affecting their lives and like sort of destroying um their families and their relationships and stuff um well and it's what's interesting is that like i mean I am not an expert and no one here is an expert, but, um, you know, speaking about like alcohol addiction or drug addiction or whatever, I mean, I don't know why it took me so long to realize it was probably like in the last 10 years or something like that. I was like, you know, maybe not is, it might not be the alcohol that it's like the thing, you know, but it's what's behind that. Like what causes you to go to your drug of choice, your coping mechanism of choice Mm -hmm. and like processing that, understanding that really deeply, um, uh, investigating, you know, what sort of propels you toward whatever it is. That's one of the interesting things about people who attend these recovery groups is they become extremely strong people Mm -hmm. because, um, they develop these habits that they are able to integrate into their lives that basically change your, their entire lives. Um, there's this wow. book, I'm going to get sort of nerdy, but there's this book, Yay. uh, it's a, it's about habit formation. It's by Stephen Duggard, something like that. It's, um, but, but anyways, he, he has this concept called keystone habits and a keystone habit is basically something that, um, it's one habit in your life that you develop that will radically transform your life. So, for example, like he uses the examples in the book about someone who's like, you know, 400 pounds overweight and they're trying to lose weight and everything they do, nothing helps them. Um, but the one keystone habit they develop is every day they keep a food journal of what they eat. Um. And for some reason, that little habit radically transforms everything. So it allows them to eat healthier. It allows them to get more active. It allows them to, you know, get better sleep. 
Um, but that's a keystone habit that basically radically transforms their lives. Um, so in AA groups or these different recovery groups, um, because you're constantly thinking about recovery and constantly thinking about how to get better, um, it radically will transform basically every aspect of your life because you enter as like, oh, I'm an alcoholic. I need to change this one behavior. But then through the group and through talking about it with other people and hearing other people's stories, you begin to realize like, I have all these other, all this other junk um, in my closet that I have to work on, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it's anger, whether it's like impatience, you know, whatever issue it is. Um, so yeah, so, so attending recovery groups is not only about changing those behaviors, but it basically can radically transform your life where you become a stronger person, you become more productive, you, you know, X, Y, and Z in terms of getting better. Well, I think it's so amazing because, um, those, those kinds of programs as well as a lot of different kinds of programs really force you to, um, look at yourself, you Mm -hmm. know, and really like, um, be very become very extremely self-aware which is i think sometimes i mean i I think that most people can only really benefit from that you Mm -hmm. know um because i think a lot of people sometimes sort of like float through life and don't really understand like the you know the all the forces acting upon them and their decisions and things Mm -hmm. like that Mm -hmm. so i always think that that's really cool no, that, I mean, what's interesting is, you know, we're talking about group and I think a lot of our work, we kind of just on ourselves, at least it's like, it you know, to, to me, it's always felt like such a lonely, like internal battle, you know, and sometimes you talk about it with others, but like, what's the benefit of group? Cause like, I've never been like in a, a group situation where like you have to share like that. And yeah. I mean, like I've been to like small groups in church and I think there's like different things, but one of my pet peeves about these kinds of small group situations is like, and I, I, I can't typify it, but at least the ones that I've been in, like, it's very much like, as long as you keep it non-specific, everybody just knows. <laughs> that that would be so frustrating. Struggling with something. I would like, I would go out of my mind, like, tell me what's happening. I need details. Well, like, and they'll go into details, but I think like the details, there's like a safe way to share details yeah, and there's yeah. a non-safe way where it's like <gasps> too real. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, oh, oversharing. Yeah, I mean, don't get me started about church small groups. I'm so critical. No, okay. So, <laughs> but like, you but know, like, maybe, well, go it, ahead. Well, it's, it's like, it's like there's, for at least for guys, I don't know how it is for women, but for guys, there's like the one to two or three things that's yeah. like appropriate to share. <laughs> yeah. you, know, you actually share. It's like, I don't read my Bible. You know, it's, I don't, I'm not doing my like spiritual disciplines of prayer or whatever. I struggle with anger. I struggle with like, like lust. Pride, yeah, yeah. Pride. You know, it's like the, the safe things to share. But if you're actually to go deeper and be like, I don't know, I, you know, I struggle with like, eating disorders you know if i struggle with like loneliness you know maybe that that one's sort of not that bad but you know no no but i think guys don't want to admit that they're lonely yeah yeah. unless it's like with the we can't find a girl (laughs) (laughs) but like like loneliness of the like loneliness existential loneliness and like or like you can't cry in small groups. i mean like for women it's okay sorry sorry men which is like that's like totally unfair you know but, um, so, um, so those, yeah, but, I'm wondering where the benefit of like kind sure. of group therapy situations. Well, I is. think at least for these recovery groups, because it's sort of a given that everyone is struggling with something that's pretty intense. Um, you know, I mean, you can go if, even if you have like a small anger problem or if you have a shopping problem, I mean, not to say that a shopping problem isn't like bad or could 
blow up into something huge, but you know, you can go for whatever reason, but it's usually the people who are so down and out and who have their lives have become so unmanageable that they go. Right. So it's a given that everyone there has like some crazy intense, like problem in their lives. Right. So people will share about like spousal abuse, you know, um, sexual abuse, um, you know, eating disorders, sexual addiction, you know, what, what have you. Um, and the benefit of being in that space is that you're with other people who have, who are going through similar processes that you are going through. And, um, they just, they have a way of relating with you. And, you know, if you were to share something like this in a church, small group, for instance, (laughs) like if you were to share, like, I have an addiction to, to eating, um, most people would be like, well, why can't you just stop? You know, like try harder. Like Maybe all those things. pray harder. Yeah, pray harder. You're, you're not following God's will. That's those why don't sort of you things. faith harder? Yeah. Faith you know, but the people in these groups, they understand like it's not just about trying or willpower. It's like there's deeper things. There's like physiological, neurological forces going on, even spiritual forces that are going yeah. on affecting you. Right. So that's one thing. Um, you also find like deep support, um, with people and also the accountability. Like there's like, there's, uh, what they call sponsors. It's like someone oh, who yeah. walks through you with the process. They're usually like much further along the recovery path than you. Um, so they're, they're they usually meet up with them and, you know, they're able to talk to you about like their own experiences and then help you like dev- we go through the 12 steps too. Um, and so they walk you through the 12 steps. Um, but, but going back to that book I referenced earlier about the habit formation, they, that book, and I think it's true. One of the things that they talk about the benefit of group is belief, right? Cause so you're in a group where you see another person, say for instance, that person has been like a prostitute for 30 years, right? And they're addicted to sex. You see, you hear their story and then you see how far they've come. And it helps you to believe that because that person who's way worse than I am, because they changed, I can change too. Right. And so it, it's sort of, it's, it's like miracles. Basically. It's like you see um, someone who was so down and out who hit rock bottom like a hundred times. And because that person has changed, I can change too. Right. And I think that's one of the most powerful things is, is that belief. belief. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. Huh. Cause the support, <laughs> the support, I like get spaces and I get space creation and like, like safety and stuff like that. But yeah, no, I mean, that's a way of faith, faithing harder, right? <laughs> it's just like, you know, like seeing other people and actually I'm part of a small group now where I think we're a little more specific about like what our struggles are. Mm-hmm. And like we went through, uh, each person shared their life story. So there's a way of like creating a space. And then like, I think like people have shared things that interlap overlapped with uh, things that other people like felt like they were having difficulty with. And so like, um, when people share about like, well, I just wish I'd read the Bible more. We're like, really? (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, not that that's bad, but like, you know, it's just like interesting. obviously not like a, I don't have any experience with like church small groups or anything like that but do you ever get people in church small groups who like share like 
bizarre, crazy things. And you're like, whoa, whoa, wait a sec, you know, or is it just what, everyone what just mean? kind of toes the line of like, there's no one yeah. else who can really like break through and like, well, I've, I've been in groups where like people are too extreme. <laughs> you know, oh. Maybe that's just because the group isn't ready to go there yet. Yeah. And, and when they share something, it's like really awkward. <laughs> like I, I remember one guy, he shared about like, he was actually, I don't want to share this story because the guy knows yeah i know him pretty well if he heard this he would be like hey that's me (laughs) you don't have to share the story but like what was the result like i mean basically he shared something that's like really frowned upon in society right it's like it's it's hard to share it without sharing specifics but 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 like people will imagine yeah yeah i mean he shared it and then because in the context we were talking about that specific struggle right and he shared something that was like really intense um and i think the result was just sort of silence and then it got awkward and then someone finally broke the ice and was like let's move on so it was just really uncomfortable yeah and, and I mean, I felt really bad, but like, it's one of those things where you're like, what am I supposed to say to that? Yeah. Like where like, you know? maybe that's something where you time to get a professional in. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Or maybe if we had a really good facilitator, that person oh. would have finessed it a little bit better, but yeah. like none of us were that good. So we were just like, okay, let's awkwardly just sort of. How old it. were you at that time? It's probably like 25. Okay. So it was a couple of years ago. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes, sometimes like like the age of the group is hard. Cause like, there's like, like at least when I was growing up, I feel like there was like, everybody was fine. Everybody like had these like really great lives. And then you find out like some people are like being abused by their parents. And they're like, <laughs> what did I don't know how to compute? Like, and like, there's nobody that can deal with it. Yeah. Like, you know, the adult leaders in the church, like they're now trained. But back then I feel like people didn't go through the same kind of training of like, well, if you hear about abuse, you have to report it to these people. And this is the chain of command. And like, these are the protocols, but they just didn't, you know, like, and it's so outside of your reality that you're like, not sure what to do with that information. Right. And you know, that's one of the interesting things about recovery groups is because everyone's strangers and it's the expectation is to keep it anonymous. Like no one shares last names. Um, but like you'll go to a recovery group and there's no expectation that you're necessarily supposed to help the other people. I mean, that sounds bad. Maybe I'll retract my statement. So initially there's no expectation that you're supposed to help. Like, like people want to help you, but it's only if you put yourself out there and say, Hey, can you help me? Then you get involved. But Mm. if so, like for instance, in one of my recovery groups, Um, you know, one of the questions was like, what's your biggest, what's one of your biggest concerns in life? And one of these guys, he shared about his financial issues, how like he doesn't have a job. He's trying to get interviews right now. And if he doesn't pay his rent, he's going to be homeless. Right. And you know, like to hear a story like that, that's really like, dang, like maybe I should give him some money, you know, but recovery groups, like if that was a church setting, of course I'd be like, Hey, like what can I help do to help you? But in recovery groups, like we are not going to help him unless he specifically comes to you and says, Hey, can you help me out in some way? Huh. So that's an interesting thing. And I guess that's one of the better things about recovery groups. Cause it's like a boundary. Yeah. It's a, definitely a boundary. Yeah. And also like it uh, encourages, um, self agency, you mm-hmm. know, like mm-hmm. you can't just be passive. You yeah. know, you have oh. to participate in, yeah. in, in, uh, benefiting yourself. And- yeah. It's, it's one of those things where, 
you're only going to get what you put into it sort of thing. Like no one's going to hold your hand. Cause that's with, I mean, well, that's one of the fundamental principles of, of recovery is that, you know, you have to own it and take responsibility for it. Like your parents are going to solve it for you. Your spouse isn't going to do it for you. Like you have to do it on your own. Wow. You have to own it or you're never going to get better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It kind of prevents those codependencies, mm-hmm. which I see in a lot of, you know, like not, not just church, but like in a lot of relationships, right? Like it's just like, I'm this awful person. You're an awful person. Let's be awful together. We're helping each other, but we're awful in different ways. So it like works out or whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, Obviously, relationships are not, you know, like nobody has these kinds of explicit conversations, but that's sometimes what they, they become these kind of these cycles of like enabling each other Mm -hmm. instead of trying to move towards something. Right. Um, wow. I, I'm kind of curious, like when, um, you go to these groups, like, are there other Asians? Are you the only Asian? Cause I, I feel like there might be a lot of barriers, like, like, well, I know, you know, it's interesting because I've been involved with a few people who, who are in AA and like, I looked through the directory, like, you know, I just saw it and then you see like specific, like, you know, so-and-so chapter for gay men, so-and-so chapter uh-huh. for whatever women, do they have like Asian American groups or whatever? Is it not like, not that I have like seen, that? Uh-huh. I'm sure they exist somewhere, <laughs> at uh-huh. least, I mean, of course this is all an- anecdotal on my part because sure. I haven't done the research or anything, but all the groups that I've gone to, I'm usually the only Asian. I mean, uh-huh. maybe one group I've gone to, I've seen another Asian American woman, like one, but I'm usually the only guy who's there and and i've i i because i live in the south bay i typically go to groups that are either in the beach cities like redondo beach you know manhattan beach those places or torrance or there's yeah. a lot of asians in torrance yeah there's or so there's i've heard a ton <laughs> um and i've also gone to a few groups out east like paramount or you know whittier um, which I was like Boston. Oh no, 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 no. Like, like East LA, East, East LA, like along the 91. Okay. <laughs> so Whittier in Boston. Oh wow. No, no, because he said over the, in the East. And so oh. I thought like the East coast, <laughs> do you feel like, I mean, obviously that's not the only place where you, you are not, where you're, the, you know, the only Asian uh-huh. person, but do you kind of like, that that it's so different i do because Uh it's it's a lot more anonymous and Mm -hmm. like one of my biggest fears at first was i'm gonna go and i'm gonna see like my dad or you know i'm gonna (laughs) see like my uncle or someone that i you know i'm gonna see someone from work so i was always freaked out like when i first went i would wear a hoodie with a beanie Uh and sunglasses you know the whole thing to sort of hide my face yeah um but I'm, i'm realizing that these support groups like Um, at least this is from my own experience. I'm sure it's not like this everywhere, but a lot of them are more working class Mm -hmm. people, uh, people of colors and whites, not people, sorry, uh, whites, uh, and non-Asians, I should say. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, yeah. Cause I think like more middle-class, upper middle-class and Asians, they probably get professional help, like through therapists or psychiatrists rather than like these groups because these groups are all free by and large i mean they take donations like they have an offering type of thing um, but they're all free so so most of the people at least in the ones that i go to in torrance there are a lot of working class whites mm. right and a lot of people live paycheck to paycheck they have financial problems um yeah 
so I mean, I, you know, when I go, like I'm usually one of the only people of color. So I feel like very hesitant to talk about like cultural issues of like, you know, like, oh, are they going to understand me? They're, mm-hmm. Maybe they're going to assume I'm, you know, I don't speak good English, whatever. Um, but, you know, I, I think there's a certain camaraderie from, like, all being addicts that sure. sort of we get over. And, I'm you know, I'm sure they have, like, racial barriers up and they have stereotypes and stuff. But, yeah. But I, you're just another addict. Yeah, I'm just like, another addict. I'm just another face in the crowd sort of thing. Interesting. Yeah. I feel like there would be, like... Like, just showing up to therapy, first of all, right, is one barrier. But, like, mm-hmm. to show up with a group of people, because then, cause then those other people know. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, and then yeah, you yeah. suddenly have to, like, be vulnerable <laughs> with a whole bunch of people. Can you imagine? Yeah. That's probably, like, the Asian American nightmare. Yeah. It's so funny because um, my wife, Monica, went with me once. And so we needed to get childcare, right? Oh. So I was like, hey, mom and dad, can you babysit Marty while we go to a small group you know? <laughs> and they're like oh like who's in the small group i'm like oh people you don't know and they're like oh where is it i'm like oh it's uh at this you know like i didn't know what to say and then and then like that's sort of my relationship with my parents though like they'll ask me questions and i'll just be like oh, i don't know and then like the conversation stops they don't probe right so yeah yeah, so I felt really awkward and that's probably one of the biggest barriers for me is like finally fessing up to my parents and telling them like hey I have these problems and it's probably in part because of you mom and dad but you know I don't necessarily blame you or I'm getting to the point where I'm not blaming you as much Um, but I mean to bring it back to the Asian American context um, at my church in Gardena I go to historically Japanese American church uh, there's a woman who's, uh, she's a pastoral intern. Um, and she, she, she spent a lot of her working career in, at the Asian American drug abuse program, ADAP. Oh, yeah. So she has, she has background in mental health and, you know, therapy and addiction type work. So she, because she's a pastoral intern, she's on a team that's launching one of these recovery groups at the church. It's still in the process of being launched. But uh, a couple Sundays ago, we put, they, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of helping with the team, but That's awesome. um, we, we, we put out a survey basically talking about like recovery, like how much do you know about it? What types of issues do you struggle with? Have you ever sought support? Do you know anyone who has sought support? Um, you know, what, you, do you feel shame about talking about some of these deeper issues? And, and we tried to broaden the spectrum of what types of issues were on the survey. So it's not only the typical like drug abuse, alcohol, you know, sex, those sort of things, but we broadened it to like internet addiction, gambling, gambling, shopping, anger, um, uh-huh. uh, you know, hurtful relationships, like sort of the whole gamut. Um, and, and so far our church is probably like at best, like 700 people. And I think we've got about like 50 surveys so far. I mean, I haven't read through them. I, am not allowed to read through them, but so I'm not sure exactly what the response was, but like hearing that we got 50 surveys back is fairly good, even That's though, encouraging. you know, yeah. yeah, even though 50 out of 700, that sounds terrible, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I mean, so it shows and, and like, you know, sort of anecdotally, like the woman who, who, who's in charge of this, she's been talking to different people who have come up to her and been like, you know, oh, this is a great idea. So at least the, the few comments she's gotten personally, um, like from people coming up to her, like they've been fairly positive. Um, but I mean, you know, we'll see how the group is because 
I can't really imagine like a lot of our, you know, older Japanese Americans coming to a group where they're like have to talk about some of their deep issues. So we're sort of expecting that a lot of the community people from the neighborhood will come and, and not a lot of church people will come. Um, yeah, and the, the, because, you know, in Gardena, it's largely a Latino, African-American immigrant sort of space, like probably a lot of those folks will come out. And, okay. Yeah. But I mean, so it's sort of too early to tell what's going to happen, but you know, there's, there's movement, there's efforts. Sure. Um, yeah. But it's I, awesome. That's yeah. so exciting. Yeah. Is your, is your, bleh. <laughs> for for this, this. Um, is is your church more English speaking as well? Yeah. Or? Okay. Yeah. So the majority of the church, yeah, is English. Like, there's two English services. There is a Nichigo, the Japanese speaking congregation. They only have about like hundred people though. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, like our church is large majority Japanese American, but there is, like, there are more and more non Japanese who are coming. Like whether they're from the local community college or they're from the neighborhood. Um, yeah, but I, I, I don't know. I feel like it's a good sort of case study of like what will happen in an Asian American setting if, you know, like um, these recovery groups are introduced and to see who comes and how much stigma and shame there will be around. And, you know, if, yeah, because I mean, even for me, like I've considered going and I'm still very hesitant because I don't want to go and see like, you know, my pastor right. or see people from the church there who I, right. who I know in a different context, like where we only talk about, you know, surface level stuff. Sure. Like, uh, yeah. Like, yeah, that that seems to be like the really nice thing about programs like a, I mean, you could go anywhere, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and not fear, you know, huh. running into people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And it's interesting because all the people on the planning team, they're, they have like really crazy addictions. Like the people on the team, they're like, they're not your typical Japanese American. Like, you know, they have had some pretty intense stories. Um, so that's why, and then, you know, for, by and large, they've sort of, uh, dealt with their issues and, and are on the men's right. So, sure. so they're more willing to put themselves out there because people, and that's another thing about the Asian American church is uh, they have like public prayer letters, right? Where like you can write prayer requests and then it'll go and like people can pray for you. And, and those prayers are usually just about physical healing. Like, Oh, my son has cancer or he broke his leg. Um, or they're about like financial issues that are caused externally. Like my husband got laid off, but it's never like, Oh, like I had a gambling problem or I embezzled money, you know, or Mm -hmm. I, I, I unwisely used my money. It's always like external problems or Mm -hmm. it's, or it's like, it's, it's prayers of Thanksgiving where it's like a, uh, their problem has had a speedy and final resolution. Right. So it's or like, some kind of achievement. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like I, I was struggling, but but now I've overcome it. And yay, praise God. You, know, yeah. sort of you didn't hear about it before yeah. when I was struggling with it, but yeah. now we're on the other end yeah. and it's okay to talk about. Yeah, and I, I feel like that speaks volumes about sort of um, people's approaches to what they're comfortable sharing. Right. True. Well, I like that you guys opened it up to those other addictions because I don't often think about like shopping because i think yeah it's easy to say drugs alcohol sex right Mm -hmm. like i feel like a big thing right now um and and because it is a big deal like uh, i think the statistic is like really high like six out of ten people are somehow addicted to like pornography right um and 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 that's within the church Mm -hmm. but like in general like 
yeah, shopping addictions, any kind of like eating disorders, uh, gambling addictions, you know, internet, internet addictions where like, you know, you're always escaping to your phone or something like that. Like those are the things that I, I feel like the Asian American church, like if we talk about a typical Mm -hmm. Asian American, Mm -hmm. I feel like there's always some kind of medication that's happening that's not self-medication yeah Yeah. that that we're coping in ways that are eventually could destroy us but they're still like well you haven't maxed out all your credit cards yet (laughs) you know what i'm saying you're like you're like really careful about what you eat and you exercise all the time but you're not quite you don't throw up right so like we're always treading these lines of like and that's the problem. Like a lot of those things are acceptable. Like so they're socially acceptable. You yeah. know, it's like, oh yeah, I go to the gym every day, but is that, you know, like I do, do you... it to feel good. Yeah, and yeah, like, you know. Is that the only thing that makes you feel good yeah. about yourself? Like, yeah. And like people aren't. Willing... I, don't, I don't do that for myself. By the way, I don't go to the gym every day, unfortunately. <laughs> but and, yeah, and that's that's the. I mean, that's yeah, that's one of the problems with the Asian American community. Like we're not willing to sort of go there and. And to fess up, right? And I mean, I'm sure if if one person or if, you know, a small group of people started saying, like, those are problems, like, most people would probably secretly identify, but they would never, like, admit it, you know? That's too shameful. (laughs) No, true. I mean, like, I was surprised at the amount of girls in high school who probably did have eating disorders and then told me later. Mm -hmm. I was like, why wasn't I aware... Uh, it was like it was like a secret club. Everybody had this like secret anorexia club that I wasn't a part of. <laughs> and I was like, you're part terrible. of the secret burrito club. <laughs> <laughs> seriously, which is like on the total opposite spectrum. Oh my gosh! But seriously, guys, bean and cheese burritos. It's an it's it's you it's put, an okay drug. Do you put tomatoes in that. No, it's just like just bean and cheese. It's bean and cheese. I don't know. Well, I'm really glad that we got full circle because we're yeah, there. yeah. Well, and I, I want to respect your time because you have to probably have to get going soon. But um, I I like that. Also, I would love to like identify as someone who's like a life like a lifetime of recovery. Wait, what is it? Oh, I'm 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 Paul, and I'm a recovering alcoholic, or I'm a recovering blank. fill in the blank. Yeah, yeah. Person who with addictions and person with problems and flaws 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 see <laughs> for guacamaneous it's gonna be like that for the rest of the day i promise you um is there anything else that you wanted to bring up paul before we um I, I think just to sort of go out on a positive note like i i would say to people who are like like on that fence of you know they think they might have unmanageable problems but they're not yet ready to admit that like one of the like I'm, I referenced twelve steps before, but that's sort of the the formula that AA and these different recovery groups use. And step number one is basically you admit that you're powerless to change, and that you admit that your life has become unmanageable. Mm-hmm. And once you're at that point where you're ready to say like, I am powerless by myself to to change these addictions, right? I need external support. That's when you're ultimately ready. To change and and my therapist was always telling me like to tell yourself or pose this question to yourself if not now when like what what's what's benefiting you from procrastinating and not seeking help like it's better to address it early and sort of head on 
and directly rather than just waiting until it snowballs and your life truly becomes unmanageable and mm-hmm. something, you know, the worst happens, whether you lose your job or you, you know, your relationship with your significant other crumbles or, you know, you, whatever it is, like, you know, just ask yourself, if not now, when, like, what's keeping you from seeking that help? Because if, you know, it's, if your life is becoming unmanageable and, um, yeah, it's, it's just better to admit to yourself earlier than later. Like a lot of people in my recovery groups, they commend me because I'm usually the youngest person there. And they're like, you know, a lot of them are in their fifties and sixties. And they're like, I wish I had gone to a recovery group when I was in my late twenties, because my life would be so much different now. Like I wouldn't have like debt. I wouldn't have gone to jail. I wouldn't have gotten divorced, you know, X, Y, and Z Mm -hmm. if they had started earlier. So yeah, just ask yourself if not now, when like, yeah, just start that journey sooner than later. Cool. Thank you. Let's mm. stop all podcasts. <laughs> if not now, win Asian America. <laughs> Put down your burrito. <laughs> Get to a group. No, thank you so much. Thank you, Paul. Yeah, sure. This is awesome, awesome, awesome discussion yeah I hopefully really appreciate sorry it. if it was super heavy and no. no they get they go there <laughs> they're supposed to go there and i'm sorry that i made you come into a room full of strangers i totally realized it as you walked <laughs> in i was like oh my gosh it's i brought okay. an introvert to a party of people he doesn't know so um, i had to go to the bathroom a couple times <laughs> <laughs> no hey i'm glad that that got employed um we're not talking about QC, right we're just gonna <laughs> yes, I think we're we're good on that. Okay, cool. All right. <laughs> Unless you want to, do you want to? No, he probably. I think you have what? to get get going, right? Whatever. No, and now we're like we've already like wrapped up fifty times. <laughs> it's okay. We can, we can we can talk about it separately. What? You, what? Would what you have that? suspected he was an INFJ by the end of this conversation? I would have been surprised. She's she's now becoming an expert too. Not by my own volition, but she's, 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 she's got for INFJs. Oh yeah. We will actually, it's, well, I think it's funny. They say it's like 5% of the population. And but I, I mean to, a lot. Yeah I, yeah. I always meet INFJs. Maybe it's because like, we always like yeah, maybe. see each other. You find each other. And yeah. actually I, I seek out, not consciously, but I seek out other, uh, NFs because I'm like, do you like feelings? I like feelings. <laughs> like, it's just like, oh, is, you want to talk about something serious? Let's do it. You know, Anne, Anne must be an NF. Huh? She's an ENFP. Okay. She's the same. Actually, me, Megumi, and Anne are all ENFPs. Uh, my roommate Kim is an NT. I think she's an INTJ. Um, is uh, you know TJ Tally, right? Yes. Is that why you got? Is he an EN? He must be an ENFP. Yeah, he must be. Yeah, he's yeah. just like, wow, you know, like his Facebook feed is like <laughs> yeah. blowing up every other minute. If he ever comes here, like you should if totally get him on. Oh, I mean, he's not Asian American, man. He grew up with. He's practically yeah. in some senses, like it's so deeply rooted. Like um, you met Rebecca, right? Like something, there's something about her that is like, she'll never be Asian American and she'll never quite understand, you know, like some of those experiences, especially the immigrant experience. But like, there's something in their uh, their genes that just kind of makes them click really well with. I other saw this Asian thing Americans. on BuzzFeed that was like, why like Asian Americans and Black nerds are like best friends forever. <laughs> no, that's hilarious. So true. I need more Black nerds in my friends, though. I'm not gonna lie. I like would like. We'll get Ken's friends to come over. They're oh like, my gosh. they're like nerdier than you might. Well, I was really gonna say the single prefer. Black nerds, but okay. 
All right. Um. Okay. Cool. Thank you, everybody.